0: Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today, you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. So, imagine with me that very first Easter morning. The women got up before sunrise to carry out their mission. Somebody had to do it, and they believed that they were the ones. So they gathered their spices and their ointments and folded up their cloths carefully and, and headed out the front door into the cool morning air. The sky was already getting light in the east, and, and the birds were singing, and, and a light breeze stirred the leaves and the olive trees as they passed them. And it, it was a beautiful morning, but they would have noticed it a whole lot more if there hadn't been this huge obstacle looming in front of them for what they had to do. One of the, the ladies said, well, how, how are we going to roll away the stone? How are we going to get the stone away from the tomb? And, and the oldest one says, well, oh, I don't know, something's going to work out. Maybe we can get the soldiers to roll away the stone for just long enough for us to go in and, and give him a proper burial. And someone said, no, I heard that the Romans put a seal on there. There is no way those soldiers are going to break that seal. And the conversation stops, but they keep walking. And as they draw near to the clearing across from the tomb, they expect to be stopped by soldiers. Only no soldiers step out. And they come to the edge, and and they look out across the clearing, and they look at the shadows and and the trees around there in the early morning light. And... Just trying to see, surely the soldiers are here somewhere, the ones who were there protecting the, the grave, and nobody's there. And so they step out into the clearing, and they begin to walk across it, and as they go across it in that early morning light, all of a sudden they see that the stone is, has, is not in front of the tomb anywhere. It's, it's been rolled away from the tomb. And their hearts dropped, disheartened, because they think, oh no, the soldiers must have moved the body. It's gone somewhere else. Now we won't be able to give him this proper burial. And so they they walk on up to the tomb, expecting it to be empty. And it is empty, but not for the reason that they thought. So the women walk into the tomb, and as they do, all of a sudden, there's this this man there in in bright white clothing who stands up as though he's been waiting for them, and walks stepping in behind him. Another man dressed the same way, white, and, and all of a sudden they know, angels, these are angels. What can this mean? What's this about? And the angel begins talking to them, and he says a number of things to them. But he says one thing that rocked their world. He... Is not here. He is risen. And all of a sudden the, the women are like, you know, they've gone from this down to this all of a sudden this this up. What? He's risen? He's he's alive. He's not dead anymore. And they, they're trying to figure this out. And they, they leave the tomb and they head back as fast as they can. And they go and tell the disciples, Peter and John jump up, and the Bible tells us they ran to the tomb to see for themselves. And they go into the tomb. And sure enough, it's like the lady said, it's empty. All they see is this. They see where the the temporary grave that they had wrapped him in were still lying there and they were still wrapped, only they were collapsed. There was no body in it. And the cloth that they had wrapped around his head had been folded up and set on the side. Peter and John look at each other trying to figure, what does this mean? Could it be that he's really risen? And they, they make their way back to the disciples and they tell them that it's, it's the way the women said. He's not there. And, and maybe he has really risen. And, and somebody gets excited and says, yeah, he is, he's alive, he's risen. And the others say, no, there's no way he can be risen. Well, why not? Well, because dead people don't rise from the dead. Well, what about Lazarus? You remember Lazarus, right? Yeah, but that's different because Jesus raised him from the dead. He was dead. We know he was dead. So they were mixed, trying to figure this out. One thing for sure they didn't do, they didn't go out and begin investigating, trying to find out, because they were afraid that the same people that had Jesus crucified would have them, his followers, crucified. So they stayed in hiding for fear. That night, something happened that changed their lives, and really the the course of world history. Jesus Showed up in their room. And there he was, standing there before them, flesh and bone and alive and talking with them. He who had been dead is standing there alive and talking with them. Now they believe he really is risen. And and it changed everything. And, And today, millions, if not billions, of people are doing what we're doing in a very special way, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? Being there, being part of that? Well, I actually left part of the story out. Not a big part, but a really important part. Actually, I left out three words. So let me go back and fill those three words in. And so the angels began talking to the women and saying several things to them and explaining things, in the, and, but one thing stood out to them that rocked their world forever. He is not here, he is risen, as he said. As he said, but what's the big deal about that? Why why is that such a significant thing? Well, let's, let's look and see. Take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Matthew. And if you're with us today and you don't have a Bible with you, that's fine. There are Bibles underneath the chairs there, and we would encourage you to take those. And we're going to be on page 1125, 1,125. When Jesus was alive here on earth and was teaching and talking, man, he was challenging a lot of the the basic beliefs of these Jewish religious leaders, and and they're trying to figure out, you know, how how do we know this is really true? How, How do we know that? And um, so they wanted to challenge him about that. So let's read here. Uh, chapter 11, excuse me, chapter 12, verse 38. It says, then some of the scribes, and the scribes were those who copied the Bible. They hand copied it, hand copied, so they knew what the Bible said. And the Pharisees, these were teachers of the Bible who explained what it meant. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered. They respond to Jesus saying, teacher, We want to see a sign from you." Well, what are they talking about? Well, whereas you and I would have probably asked Jesus, why should we believe you? Why should we believe what you're saying? Why should we believe that you are who you say you are? You're saying some pretty amazing things, teacher. Why should we believe you? But the way they would ask in their days, instead of saying why, they would say, okay, you're saying all these things? You're saying we should believe it? Show us a miracle. Show us a miracle so that we'll know that you really talk for God. And so that was the challenge they were giving him. You know, you're saying these tough things, show us a miracle. Then he answered, but he answered and said to them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Now stop there. Just asking for the sign is not a problem, but what he's saying there is, you're revealing your hearts here. Because it's not a problem to give you a sign, but you know what's going on? You don't want to believe. You really don't want to know the truth. All you want to do is try to discredit me. Okay, so your motives aren't right in asking. And then he says this. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." Well, what is he talking about here? Well, you may or may not have heard the story of Jonah. He was a prophet in the Old Testament that God said, I want you to go and tell these people that they need to repent, this wicked city of Nineveh. And Jonah said, nope, think I'm going the other direction. Didn't want to do that. And in the process, he gets thrown overboard. Long story, gets swallowed by a great fish, okay? And he's in that fish for three days and three nights and the fish makes his way to where Jonah was supposed to be going and spits him out on the beach. Jonah rethought things and said, maybe I'll go do what God told me to do. <laughs> but three days and three nights in there, good as dead. You know, he figured his life was over. Well, Jesus says, that is pointing you to me and what I'm going to do because I am going to be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. And the heart of the earth was was the way that they would say when they buried somebody. Jonah was in this fish for three days and nights. But tell you what, I'm going to be buried. I'm going to be in a tomb. In other words, I'm going to be what? What? Dead. I'm going to be dead three days and three nights. Now, that's not a big deal. Everybody who has ever died more than three days ago has been in the grave three days and three nights. But the the, the parallel to Jonah is very clear, that after three days and three nights, I will no longer be dead in the tomb. I will be risen. And they knew exactly what he was talking about. So what I want you to see is this. Jesus says, they say, what's the sign? Why should we believe you? Why should we believe that you are the son of God? Why should we believe that you are going to be the savior of the world? Why should we believe any of these things? And he says, because I'm going to die and rise again. My resurrection will be the proof to you that I am who I say I am and that I can and will do what I say I'm going to do. The resurrection. In other words, he is risen as he said. Jesus set the resurrection up that this is the way you will know. I mean, as Christians, we have lots of things that we believe, lots of things that we need to believe. Jesus says that they all hinge on the fact that he rose from the dead. And if he did not rise from the dead, there is no Christianity as we know it. The Apostle Paul talked about that. He said that the resurrection is the most essential thing, the most essential doctrine that we hold. Without it, he says, we are miserable. We have no faith. We have no forgiveness of sins. All these things are not true if Jesus did not rise from the dead. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, we should just stop here and go back out and finish the refreshments. But Jesus did rise from the dead. So why should we believe these things? You know, I think a good question, uh, the right question at this point to ask would be, well, if Jesus said, my resurrection is the key, the Apostle Paul said the resurrection is the key, then doesn't it make sense for us to ask, did he really rise from the dead? And that, that's a logical question. And, and God set it up that way, that it's, it's a good question, it's the right question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? From the dead. And so we want to consider those things. How do we know that he really rose from the dead? Luke, the the, the man who wrote the Gospel of Luke and who wrote the book of Acts, says it this way. He says that Jesus showed himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs being seen by them. Infallible proofs. Well, what are those things? What are those evidences? How do we know that Jesus really rose from the dead? And remember, it really matters. How do we know if he really rose from the dead? Well, here's how the thinking goes. First of all, you gotta understand, we cannot prove this scientifically. You cannot use a scientific proof because scientific proof is perfect for what it's designed for, which is interacting with the physical world around us, figuring out how things work, figuring out how why things break, trying to fix things, all sorts of things. But it's built on two things, scientific proof. One is that you have to be able to observe it. You have to be able to observe it, measure it, weigh it, time it, whatever, okay? You have to be able to observe it and then you have to be able to repeat. Those observations, experiment, that's what the scientific method does. They say, we think this is true, they put an experiment to see, they, they run the experiment, and then they run it again, and they run it again, and someone on the other side of the world can run the same experiment. That's how the scientific method works. But you understand that scientific method can never then be used to try to determine what happened in the past. Because what happened in the past cannot be observed today, can it? Cannot be repeated today. So what kind of a proof do we use? How do, what kind of evidence do we look for? Well, it's, it's not really that big a deal because every weekday in the courthouses of America, they prove things or disprove things that happened in the past, don't they? That's what the courthouse is about. And, and it's called a legal proof. And so, or a historical proof, trying to go back, how do we know that something happened in the past? All right, so let's think about this. We want to then apply this kind of thinking, and we'll walk our way through this. The first question is this, who says that he rose from the dead? Who said it? Well, who said it were people who claimed to be eyewitnesses to it. They claimed that they saw Jesus themselves. And we know, we see multiple uh, eyewitnesses in the Gospels. We see that his friends and family saw him. We see that the Apostle Paul saw him at a later date. We see that 500 people at once, it says a crowd of over 500, saw him alive. So these are the eyewitness claims that we have, that he rose from the dead. We know this. We saw this ourselves. Well, a question arises, do we actually have the real testimony of the eyewitnesses. Because how many of you have ever heard somebody say, maybe on TV, maybe someone you're having a conversation with, that, well, the Bible that we have isn't really what they wrote back then. It's been changed so many times. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah? That's what people say. Well, let's, let's examine this and see if that's true. You know, historians all the time look at ancient documents and make determinations about whether or not they're accurate, whether or not they were reliable or authentic. I guess that's what I would try to say. The question is, we have this eyewitness testimony, but is this really what they said in the past? That's the question. Now, when historians look at ancient documents and try to figure this out, what they try to figure out and find out is, okay, so it happened way back there, what is the oldest copy that we have of what was said, okay? What was the oldest copy? And, and we, you know, the, the closer we can get to the, to the events, the, the more likely it is to be accurate. Okay? And so what's the oldest copy we have? And then is that oldest copy the same as what we have today? Does it match? See, that's how we figure this out. And so they, they apply this test to like the writings of Plato, the writings of Homer, the writings of Aristotle. And what they find is this that they go back and the the copies that that are the, the closest to when it happened are anywhere from 750 to 1300 years after it was written. Now that's a long time, isn't it? Okay? Say a thousand years on average, away from the originals. And yet, does anybody question today whether we have the words of Aristotle? No. The words of Homer? No. The words of Plato? No. Nobody questions that because, It's good, it's settled, right? what we have is the same as what we have today in those writings. Well, let's talk about the New Testament for just a little bit. Do you know that we have found, we, not me, we Christians, historians have found a, a fragment. I'm not sure how big it is. I think it's about like this big. And it's written on both sides. And it's dated within 30 to 40 years of the time it was written, just after the turn of the first century. And you know what's on it? Portions of the Gospel of John. This came from a copy of the Gospel of John. And um, you know it's the Gospel of John on one side and the other side it's a different part so it's like you know if you would had a page and it continued on the other page. And it matches what we have here within the first generation after. And if we go out another two, three hundred years, we have like, like 6,000 different copies of the, the New Testament. And guess what? They all say the same thing. Now, you're going to hear people say, no, they don't, there's differences. Well, there are differences. Sometimes people misspelled words. Anybody here ever misspell a word? Right, sometimes the people copying it misspelled words. Thousands of copies, we might expect that to happen. Occasionally, a word order will get changed. Instead of saying Jesus Christ, it'll say Christ Jesus. But they're all the same. So do you understand that what we have here is what they wrote back then. In fact, F.F. Bruce, who was a scholar at the Manchester University in England says this, he says, if the New Testament were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would be generally regarded as beyond doubt. They're authentic. So when you read what it says, Matthew says here, Mark, Luke, John, this is what they wrote. You can be confident in it. Now, the next question is this. Were they lying to us? Did they make it all up? Well, in a court of law, how would you determine that? Well, what you would try to do is you try to impeach a witness by saying, you know what, they lied. You know how many, look, they schemed. They got rich off this, right? They had reason to lie. They're going to make a lot of money if this goes through. Or or they got power. Well, you know what? The disciples never got rich. Never got rich. Never acted like they wanted to get rich. All they wanted to do was tell people, Jesus rose from the dead. He is who he says. He's the Savior of the world. Your sins can be forgiven for That's all they cared about. And the only times we see them collecting money was not for themselves. It was to give to other people in need, like a Mother Teresa would have done. That's what we see. So they had no motivation financially to lie. And they had no motivation of power. They didn't build themselves up in power. It didn't happen. That isn't the way things function. They didn't try to do that. And so there's no motivation for them to have lied. And when you add to that the fact that every one of them suffered terribly for preaching the gospel. They were persecuted, they were tortured, they were jailed. All but one of them were put to death. What did they have to gain by lying? And even though all that happened, they never changed their story. Never, even in the face of all the harm that came to them. Now, we also see that they were changed by this. What were they doing? After Jesus had been crucified and put in the grave, what were they doing? Hiding. They were hiding. They were fearful. They weren't going to go out and out because they were scared of what was going to happen. But after they saw Jesus, what do they do? Man, they show up in the temple right in front of everybody. The religious leaders say, Jesus is risen. This one whom you crucified is risen. They are now bold, and they speak powerfully. In fact, later on, the religious leaders who were persecuting them said, How in the world can these guys be like this? Are these the same guys? And then they says they took note that they had been with Jesus, the risen Jesus. It changed them forever. And all the way to the end of their lives, they never, ever recanted, never got rich, never... These eyewitnesses are credible. They can be believed. And you know, there's another eyewitnesses that we have testimony of, and that is the Roman soldiers who were there guarding the tomb. It says that after this happened, they went and told the Jewish religious leaders, here's what happened. They told them how the the angels had come, the stone had been rolled away, and how how Jesus walked out of the tomb, and and they were scared to death and and laying there and not wanting to move. And they went and told them, see, the problem is that If they failed guarding that tomb, they would be executed. They would pay for it with their lives. And so you notice they don't go to the Romans, their Roman captains and tell them, they go to the Jewish religious leaders, and what are we gonna do, what are we gonna do? And the Jewish religious leaders said, tell you what, we'll give you some money here. You say that the disciples came and stole the body and we'll take care of your military leaders, the government leaders. But there's eyewitness testimony. And we have not just eyewitness testimony, we have circumstantial evidence to this as well. You know, the Bible is not the only place that we hear about Jesus and the disciples and the claims of the resurrection. The secular writers that that lived in and around that time and secular writers who were often hostile to the the Christians and Christianity. Let's go ahead and put that up there. And I know that's, that's way too small for most of you to read, but let me say this. This comes not from the Bible. These are people talking about what was being said at this time, what was being believed, what was being practiced. Jesus was born and lived in Palestine. He was born supposedly to a virgin and had an earthly father who was a carpenter. He was a teacher who taught that through repentance and belief, all followers would become brothers and sisters. He led the Jews away from their beliefs. He was a wise man who claimed to be God and the Messiah. He had unusual powers and performed miraculous deeds. He healed the lame. He accurately predicted the future. He was persecuted by the Jews for what he said, betrayed by Judas Iscariot. He was beaten with rods, forced to drink vinegar and wear a crown of thorns. He was crucified on the eve of the Passover, and this crucifixion occurred. Under the direction of Pontius Pilate during the rule of Tiberius. On the day of his crucifixion, the sky grew dark. There was an earthquake. Afterward, he was buried in a tomb. The tomb was later found to be empty. His disciples claimed he was resurrected from the grave and showed them his wounds. These disciples then told others Jesus was resurrected and ascended into heaven. Jesus and disciples and followers upheld a high moral code. In other words, they practiced what they were preaching. The disciples were also persecuted for their faith, but were martyred without changing their claims. This is what the secular writers and writers who were hostile to it said was being believed and taught and lived. Folks, we have historical proof better than any other ancient event Way better than any other ancient event. We have historical proof that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And this matters because you've got to understand the fact that Jesus rose from the dead is is not a matter of hope. It's objective thinking about the facts. His resurrection is not about faith. It's about objective thinking about the facts. God set it up so that the central tenet of Christianity is not left to what you or I believe, but to a historical event that anybody can go look and see and find out and discover that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And this is why we have reason to believe reason to believe because jesus rose i have reason to believe and and we do move into the faith realm with this okay the fact that jesus rose from the dead is not a faith issue it's a historical issue but from there we, we go to faith issues and we make faith decisions and belief decisions because we have good reason to. I mean, if Je- I mean, have you ever known anybody, I don't know if anybody ever known anybody that said they were God? Anybody here ever known anybody that said they were God? No, and if we did, we'd think they were what? Crazy. And you can say them, well, prove it. <laughs> well, that's what the religious leaders did to Jesus. How do we know that you're who you say you are? He says, uh, and they said, prove it. And he said, okay, I will. I'll rise from the dead, and he did. Because that's true, I think we ought to listen to him. The only one who ever rose from the dead, on his own. And so we have reason to believe. And this idea of moving to the belief part, moving away from just the objective fact thing, moving to the belief part is really important. In fact, the scripture says it this way in, in the book of Hebrews, without faith it is impossible to please God. In other words, it's not just about knowing something. It's not just knowing that Jesus rose from the dead. It's knowing that Jesus rose from the dead and then saying, okay, because of this, now I have reason to believe that he was who he said he was, that he can and will do what he said he's going to do. Have reason to believe these things. And so let's talk a little about this moving from this knowledge to belief and how important it is. Go in your Bible to to Gospel of John. We're going to be on page 1223. Page 1223. John chapter 3. Really well-known passage of Scripture. Probably most of you have heard these words. And it says this, verse 16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. This is something that the resurrection gives us reason to believe. So let's talk about this verse and what it says here for a little bit. For God so loved the world. God loves us. That's the starting point for God. He loves us and wants us to have a relationship with him. But there's a problem that gets in the way. And he says he gave his only begotten son. This tells us about Jesus' identity. Who was Jesus? He is the son of God. He is God in human form. Okay, He is the Lord of all. That's who he is. And, and he came from his father to us. That whoever believes in him, we'll talk more about that in a little bit, should not perish, but have everlasting life. Should not Verse 18 talks about being condemned. You see, there's a problem. And this is why Jesus came. But the problem is this, that we are all, by nature, perishing. What that means is that we are going to die. And not only are we going to die physically, if we die without with our, our sins forgiven, we stand before God and we will receive the judgment of spiritual death, which is eternity in hell. That's what we We've all sinned. Now, I know you come to church and say, man, I have, I've been to church a long time and decided to come on Easter and the pastor says I've sinned. Well, I want to say don't take it personal, but I want you to take it personal. But I have sinned many, many, many times. More than I would like to admit. I've disobeyed God, I've been selfish. I haven't given God his rightful place in my life. Many times I do what I feel like instead of what I know is right. I haven't always loved other people the way I ought to. I'm pretty selfish sometimes. Uh, But we all are. We've all gone our own way, done our old thing. We've all disobeyed God at some point. And because of that we are separated from him. Because of that it says we are condemned. That is our eternal destiny of condemnation. Apart from Jesus Christ. But it says, God loved us so much, He sent His Son into the world to be our Savior so that we wouldn't have to perish. And what happened is, Jesus, the perfect Son of God, lives a perfect and sinless life because He is God in human form. He's a human being, He's God, but He lives a perfect and sinless life. And then He goes to the cross. And as He dies on the cross and hangs there, The Bible says that that God the Father took all of the penalty and the blame, the guilt for my sin, and put it on His Son Jesus, and He died paying the penalty for my sin, bearing my guilt. And He said, He did the same thing with your sins, every one of your sins, the same thing with the sins of the whole world. He died there paying that penalty. And then as we've already established, he rose from the dead. Showing indeed that he is who he said he was. And that he did do what he said he would do. And that God did indeed put the penalty for my sin and your sins upon him as he died there. And the issue comes then down now to what are we going to do about it? We have reason to believe. Are we going to? Are we going to? Let's look in verse 18 again. He who believes in him is not condemned. So he sent Jesus so that that he could die for our sins and that if we would believe, and I'm going to talk about what that means just a moment, if we would believe in him, then that condemnation would be gone. It says this though, but he who does not believe is condemned, what's the next word? Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. You don't have to do a thing here today to end up separated from God forever and eternity. That's where we all, all start, and that's where we're all headed. But if we will believe, we can be saved from that terrible destiny, destination. When the Bible talks about believing, it means there's it two ideas in it. One is that there's something that you have to know. There is an intellectual component to this. You have to know that That Jesus really did die and rise again from the dead. Okay, you have to know the facts. You have to know the things that you're going to believe that we've all sinned against Him and that we are separated from Him and that we need a Savior. And without that, that we will experience eternal condemnation apart from Him. We need to know these things, okay? But knowing is never enough. When the Bible talks about belief, it adds another part to this knowledge and that is trust. Trust. Not only do I know this, I am now making a choice to trust that truth for me. And I'm bringing those two things together. And so the challenge to you today and the question to you today is we know that Jesus rose from the dead. And we believe then that all the things that he said were true. And we believe what it says about us as sinners and our destiny. But are you going to believe? Are you going to know that Jesus died for your sins and rose again today and stop there? Are you going to know and then say, hey, I'm going to trust that for me. I trust that for me. I'm going to give you an opportunity to make that decision. When we talk about this decision, we, we call it receiving Christ as Savior. That's what we're talking about. In just a moment, I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that, to make that decision, to receive Christ as Savior. I'm going to have you, if you want to do that today, say, you know, I don't think I've ever settled that. I don't know that I've ever really settled this once and for all. And it is a once and for all settling it, once in a lifetime decision that you make. If you haven't ever settled I'm going to ask you to pray with me to pray along with me and talk to God about this and make a conscious decision to receive Jesus as Savior. I'm going to give you the opportunity. And you can pray silently. You don't have to pray out loud. God knows what you think and he knows what's in your heart. And let me be really clear. This is not like some magic prayer. It isn't a magic prayer. In other words, it isn't, you say these words and, and then you'll be forgiven. No, no, what we're talking about is you in your heart and mind saying to God, okay, God, I get it. <laughs> I've sinned against you and I need... I need a savior. I need to be forgiven. I need eternal life. And, and you, from the sincerity of your heart, speak these things to God. Let's all bow our heads and close our eyes. If you're here today and you say, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever really settled that. I, you know, I, mean, I believed in God. I believed in Jesus. But I haven't ever really received Christ as my Savior. I never made that once and for all, once in a lifetime decision that from now on, I'm trusting Jesus. But you would like to make that decision. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that right now. In just a moment, I'm going to pray a prayer and as I do, I want you to pray along with me again. Pray silently your heart and mind before the Lord. He knows what's going on inside your heart and mind. If you want to do this, join me right now. Say to God something like this. It doesn't have to be the exact word. Say, God, I know that I have sinned. And I know that my sins have separated me from you. And I know that my sins will send me to hell. But I believe that Jesus really did rise from the dead. And that he died for my sins. I believe that he's who he said he was. And right now, I receive Christ as my Savior. Right now, I make a personal once and for all decision to receive Christ as Savior and to receive the forgiveness of sins that comes with that. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Head still bowed, eyes closed. No one looking around, please. The Bible says that when you or I come before God and receive Christ as Savior, as we just prayed, he says that he forgives every sin, every sin he paid for that you ever have or ever will commit. He says that when this life is over, that you will go to be with him because you now have everlasting life. And, and probably the biggest and best thing he says that he is now moved into your life into you and he's gonna begin working on you, helping you to change, to to learn to live like a Christian, think like a Christian. He's gonna do that from the inside out. And so it's a huge decision that you've made, the best decision you could ever make. And what I wanna do is I wanna pray for you about that decision and pray for you that it'll be very real and that you'll live it out and, and go forth from here with a new way of looking at life and living. And so I'm going to ask you in just a moment, if you prayed with me, to raise your hand so that I can know who you are and pray for you. So with nobody else looking around, please, if you prayed with me this morning that prayer to say, yes, I receive Christ as Savior by praying with you today, with no one to look around, would you just lift up your hand so I can see it and pray? Yes, I see those hands. Others? Anyone else today? Yes, I see that one. Others? Thank you. You can put your hands down. Anybody else? Father, we come before you and thank you for these who have raised their hands, indicating that they received your Son as Savior today. I pray, Father, that that you will give them this great confidence that you have done what you promised to do, that you have forgiven every sin. They will never, when this life is over, have to pay a penalty for the sin because your Son already did. That you have given them eternal life, and when this life is over, they will go to be with you. And Lord, I pray you really impress it upon them that you have now moved into their lives. And that you're going to help them learn what it means to be a Christian, learn how to live like a Christian, how to think like a Christian. And I pray, Father, that'll let us help them with this decision. I pray to be very real to them. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. LifeSource Church family, three adults today receive Christ as Savior. Praise the Lord! Right. I'm going to ask that if you did pray with me to receive Christ as Savior, whether or not you raised your hand, just hang in here with me just a little bit, okay? Whether or not you raised your hand or not, if you prayed with me today to receive Christ as Savior, you look right there in the chair in front of you, uh, there are two things in there. One is what's my next step, okay? And i ask you to take this with you, and even if you didn't pray with me, you can free to take this with you. Take this with you, look it over. Understand what it is because there's some things you ought to do now. Second thing we'd really ask you to do is to let us know you made this decision. Either tell uh, you know one of us here that you have prayed to receive Christ today, so we can encourage you in it, or take one of these cards out of the pew, out of the pew, out of the chairs, and fill it out and just check right down here. You know, today I uh, once and for all trusted Christ as my Savior, and then just drop it off at the connection center. Okay? We really want to encourage you with this and help you with it now. Having talked about the resurrection today and that we have reason to believe, let me say this. I understand that lots of people struggle with doubts. I understand that. It's not abnormal. Not everybody struggles with doubts, but a lot of people do. And so the next sermon series is entitled Unbelief. Unbelief. And we're going to look at... What are the things that we struggle with? Why do we struggle with those things? How can we learn to maybe think differently? How can we address those doubts that we have? And what can we do to strengthen and increase our faith? So that will be the next sermon series. Now, the original plan was that, for that to start next Sunday. However, I have to have surgery on this arm tomorrow, and so I will not be preaching next Sunday. Pastor Dave will be preaching next Sunday. But the week following, so two weeks from today, we'll begin a really important sermon series. That deals with doubt and how you can deal with it. Okay? All right, thank you for being here. God bless you. Have some great time of fellowship, uh, and we'll see you hopefully next Sunday.